This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Once again, the goal of this podcast is to deliver radio broadcasts as you would have heard them 80 years ago during the days of World War II. Our episodes are a mix of entertainment, news, and other information. This week, we have an episode of America Looks Abroad. First broadcast 80 years ago today, October 27, 1940. This NBC production from the Foreign Policy Association emphasizes the importance of America preparing its economy for war. More than a year before the United States officially entered the war, it shows how many were already thinking about the coming conflict. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you enjoy the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, on to this week's episode. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. America looks abroad. This is the 48th in a series of broadcasts presented by the staff members of the Foreign Policy Association, a nonpartisan organization which offers accurate information on world affairs. Today's subject is America's economic defense. The speaker is Mr. John C. DeWilder, research associate of the Foreign Policy Association. Mr. DeWilder. Good afternoon. Last Wednesday's papers carried an inconspicuous dispatch from Washington. In the paper I read, it was tucked away on an inside page. Yet the news it brought may ultimately affect all of us very intimately. President decrees defense priority. That was the rather prosaic, undramatic heading of the dispatch. It went on to report that the president had granted the priorities board of the Advisory Defense Commission the power to make industry give Army and Navy contracts precedence over all other work. In other words, production for defense may be the first order of the day from now on. The satisfaction of your wants and my wants may have to come second wherever it interferes with the business of arming our country. That does not mean, of course, that we shall have to sacrifice overnight the comforts and living standards we have hitherto enjoyed. No, not for the present. But as our defense program really gets underway, and our mines and factories concentrate more and more on the grim task of preparing for war, we as civilian consumers must be prepared to pay the price for greater security against aggression. Today, national defense and war require economic as well as military mobilization. War has become a clash of machines, of aircraft, ships, tanks, and complicated heavy artillery. The key to military success is the capacity to produce, and the mechanic and machine in the factory are as vital to war as the aviator, the soldier, and the sailor. 
We in the United States have decided not to postpone our preparations until the day when bombs might explode under our feet. We have adopted military conscription, and our Congress has appropriated over $12 billion for national defense in the current year. We mean to have an army of 1,400,000 men by July 1941, and a tuna ocean navy by 1946 or 1947. To equip such an army with all the instruments of modern war and to build up the navy is no easy task. We should visualize it primarily as an economic problem in terms of the raw materials, factories, labor, power and transportation facilities that will be needed for this great effort. We must see to it that all the resources required for our national defense program are made available for this purpose. We shall even have to make sure that we'll have enough of everything in the event that we are actually involved in war. One may wonder why we as a highly industrialized and wealthy nation should have to make any special organized effort to turn out war material. We have tremendous natural resources. Only the Soviet Union can rival us in the extraordinary diversity and quantity of available raw materials. Chemistry has made us even more self-sufficient giving us new fibers like nylon and vignon, plastics and resins, synthetic rubber and magnesium. And this country has no equal as an industrial power. We were the first nation to master the technique of mass production. Since the last war, we have made great strides in diversifying and extending our industrial development. Moreover, much of our labor and industrial capacity remains unused. It would seem a relatively easy matter to put our idle men and idle capital to work, producing whatever we need in the way of munitions. In reality, the job is not so easy. It requires concerted effort and planning by our government. We may be wealthy in raw materials, but there are still serious deficiencies, like rubber, tin, manganese, chromium, tungsten, and the like. We may have ever so much iron and coal, but without manganese we could produce no steel. Most of us roll to work on rubber tires, and without a humble tin can, we can hardly conceive of feeding our civilian population, let alone the army. We may have a general excess production capacity in this country, but at the same time it is entirely possible for serious bottlenecks to develop at vital points. The manufacture of war material puts a heavier burden on certain segments of our economy than on others. For example, a serious shortage of skilled labor may develop in the face of general unemployment. Moreover, we must take into account that we have suffered from a prolonged period of economic depression. During this period, replacements of industrial plant and equipment have lagged. Much of our machinery has become obsolescent, and even if it isn't ready for the junk pile, it has become less efficient. In the same way, labor skills have deteriorated through long disuse. Today, we cannot put many of our unemployed back to work without retraining. But I have not yet mentioned the two principal reasons why we need to mobilize in the economic field for national defense. The first is that production for war is vastly different from production for peace. The second, and corollary reason, is that it takes a long time to gear our economy for the job of turning out munitions. In this country, we are particularly handicapped by the lack of a large armament industry. In the past, we heartily detested the munitions makers, the merchants of death, as we called them. 
No manufacturers would risk the unpopularity of manufacturing and selling arms on a large scale. All this did credit to our humanitarian instincts, but it also means that we must now create an arms industry almost overnight. We can, of course, to some extent, convert existing industrial plants to the manufacture of armament. But the production of planes, guns, tanks and explosives is a highly specialized job. Our automobile factories, for example, can't simply start turning out planes instead of cars. True, General Motors is already making an airplane engine, and Ford, Packard and Studebaker are also planning to manufacture aircraft engines. And Chrysler has a government contract for tanks. But in these cases, new factories have to be built, and new and special types of machinery installed. In the First World War, we learned how long it takes to produce munitions. As a result of trial and error, we finally set up an efficient organization for war. This country did a marvelous job in equipping our armies and supplying our allies. Yet on many critical items, production did not really get into full swing until just before the armistice. None of the thousands of tanks we ordered could be finished in time for use in training or combat. The first howitzer was not delivered until July 1918, and only 667 American planes reached the front in France. In many cases, our soldiers had to use the arms supplied by our allies. Today we are going through a similar experience. The war and navy departments have let defense contracts amounting to over eight and a half billion dollars. But that marks only the first stage in carrying out our defense program. It simply means that the army and navy have decided what and how much they need and that they have found the concerns willing to manufacture these goods. In the next and longest stage, our industries must get ready to produce. They must build and equip the necessary plants or extend the capacity of existing factories. They must find the needed labor and buy the requisite raw materials. Building and installing the necessary machine tools alone may require almost a year. It takes 10 to 12 months to set up a powder plant ready for production, 8 to 11 months for a machine gun factory, and 9 to 14 months for an airplane plant. Chrysler, for example, is now building a plant to manufacture tanks, but operations cannot begin before next summer. This does not mean that we have made no progress. We enter what one might call the phase of preliminary mobilization last May when the President appointed the National Defense Advisory Commission. The job of this commission is to help the Army and Navy get what they need for their defense programs. By assisting in the solution of difficult problems of taxation and amortization, the commission has enabled private industry to start production of war materials. It is helping the War Department in establishing new government-owned plants for such items as explosives, which private industry has no inclination or capacity to produce. Finally, it's keeping a close watch over industrial developments and the supply of labor and raw materials in order that steps may be taken to anticipate possible bottlenecks. The Labor Division, for example, has launched a campaign to train labor for our defense industries. The government has also taken important measures to conserve and increase the supply of vital raw materials of which our own output is insufficient. We are spending millions of dollars to buy up emergency stocks of manganese, rubber, tin, tungsten, chromium, and other materials. 
Since the middle of last summer, we have been restricting, by license, exports of all products essential to national defense. Today there is need of haste, and still more haste. Dramatic developments in Europe and the Far East may bring us face to face with war almost overnight. Up to the present, we have tried to superimpose production for defense on the existing volume of business, with little or no disturbance to ordinary civilian requirements. We have adhered to business as usual, just like the British until last spring. We have refrained from imposing price controls or priorities on business and from interfering with the hours of work and wages of labor. Such measures have not proved necessary so far, but as industry swings into large-scale production for defense and as re-employment stimulates civilian consumption, we must be prepared for progressively more drastic interference with normal business. If we are really earnest about arming ourselves and want to do it in a hurry, defense must have first claim on our energies and resources. President Roosevelt took a step in this direction when he empowered the Defense Commission to enforce priority for defense orders. But additional measures will undoubtedly have to be taken in the near future. The Defense Commission itself may have to be completely revamped. Hitherto, it has had merely advisory functions. It has no executive authority and no chairman other than the very busy president of the United States. Before long, this commission may have to give way to a body provided with a full-time head, entrusted with clearly defined responsibility and with power to make and enforce decisions. Many people are worried about this trend of affairs. They see us developing a military economy like that of Nazi Germany, in which freedom and private enterprise will be lost and living standards sacrificed. They fear that we shall have to adopt a totalitarian economy and government in order to meet effectively the challenge of the totalitarian countries. And they wonder if the game is worth the candle. In large part, this anxiety is unjustified. Remember that Nazi Germany had to regiment its whole economy to the last detail primarily because it is relatively poor. There was not enough for guns and butter, so it chose to concentrate on guns. We, on the other hand, live in a much richer country, in a land of potential plenty. Our resources and manpower are still not fully utilized. We can have guns and butter, provided we employ all the resources at hand. This does not mean that we can continue to enjoy a rising standard of living while arming to the hilt. No sacrifices will be needed. We shall, have to put all, we shall all have to put our shoulders to the wheel. Like Germany, we could resort to compulsion. We could call our industrialists to Washington and command them to build the necessary munitions factories. We could transfer workmen arbitrarily from one section of the country to another, wherever they are needed for national defense. But that is not the way of democracy. Our way is that of voluntary cooperation under the guidance and control not at the dictation of government. Great Britain is today giving a remarkable demonstration how a country can carry out a great national mobilization without sacrificing the essentials of democracy. We can do the same. Mr. John C. DeWilder, Research Associate of the Foreign Policy Association, was today's speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. If you would like a free copy of this talk, 
Address your request to the Foreign Policy Association, 22 East 38th Street, New York, or in care of the station to which you are listening. The Foreign Policy Association is a nonpartisan organization open to all who are interested in American foreign policy. It offers accurate information on current world happenings. In the world of today, foreign affairs are your affairs. We invite you to tune in next Sunday to hear another speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. This afternoon's broadcast originated in the studios of WNBC in Hartford. This is the National Broadcasting Company.